ready up here, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. This morning, uh, we stand at the precipice of what uh, is considered the first half of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, not just uh, in chapter number, but in thematic, thematic order. We began our study through this epistle under the unifying heading, The Exalted Christ. We often speak of Christ as, um, as here and near to us, as with us to the end of the age, and all those are true. But we must not forget that our, that our Savior has been exalted on high. He's been given a name above all other names, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. This place uh, of exalted status of Christ grants him, according to his anointing, according to his Messiahship, certain rights and certain privileges and certain authority within the church. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see him, or I see him, expounding this idea of Christ being exalted, now uh, left for a time in bodily form to return again uh, at the end of the age. And so in doing so, he lays out this letter as we have covered, that we have seen this subject under these headings. In chapter 1, we recognize that there is a heavenly witness to the exalted Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, we saw that there is an earthly witness to the exalted Christ in bringing many sinners to glory, in bringing dead sinners to life, in uniting two people groups into one new humanity. And now Paul is turning our attention from doctrine to devotion, from indicatives, what what is stated as fact, to imperative, to something then upon which we build on those facts a life, or there is consequences to knowing these things. And so we'll see in chapters 4 and 5 that there is a earthly reality of the exalted Christ. And finally in chapter 6 there's actually also a heavenly reality or an unseen reality to the exalted, or of the exalted Christ. So follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll, I'll be reading through verse 6, though only covering the first verse this morning. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this morning to come before your word, to anticipate that your spirit would illuminate it to us. Lord, I pray that you would use this earthen vessel to communicate your truth, that your people may be encouraged. We've come here in expectation to be met by the exalted Christ. And we, with faith, hope, and love, Lord, see that in your promises this may be true. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I've been saying that these first three chapters, they laid a foundation by revealing that God has chosen from among Jews and Gentiles a people for himself who are united into one body, which is the church. This church constitutes a new humanity such that uh, ethical constructions are done away with as it relates to the kingdom of God. Paul has characterized the unity of believing Jews and Gentiles as one new people the body of Christ, and has portrayed for the perfection of that unity through mutual experience of Christ's empowering love. He now demonstrates how this is accomplished by God's power through the ministry of gifted people given by Christ to the church so that the body might grow into spiritual maturity. In the latter three chapters of this epistle, Paul instructs God's people how to conduct themselves in union with Christ and with each other. I agree very much with this summary of what is about to be expounded upon by Paul, by this commentator. Because we see that within the construction of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that he took great care and took great length at establishing this doctrinal foundation, by which now when we turn the page on the letter to the Ephesians, he begins with, therefore, this understanding that there is something that has come before and there is something that will come after. But what comes after cannot come to the ignorance of what came before, nor can what come after come to the ignorance of what, or I, I switched that up. I said the same thing. What came before does not come without anticipation of what comes after. So, if you're following along or keeping notes, we're going to address this first verse under three headings. Orthopraxy, ordinary, and obligatory. This idea of orthopraxy is one that when you type it into your Word document, document you get those red squiggly lines. And nothing is found in the dictionary. But I promise you I didn't make it up. Orthopraxy comes to us with the Greek construction of right living. Ortho being correct or right or true. Praxy being practical or living. You may be familiar with the word orthodoxy. Right thinking, right knowing. Orthodoxy is what we can summarize verse, our chapters 1 through 3 in Paul's letter here. Orthopraxy 
summarizes verses 4 through 6, yet they're not exclusive. Paul doesn't turn away from doctrine and says, now that we're done with that, I won't bring anything back up. Because what we're finding is that we're heading right into some uh, very real uh, heavenly cosmology coming in the next uh, number of verses in chapter 4. Well, we're going to have to understand the levels of this unseen world that's laid out for us in Scripture, such that Paul describes to the encouragement, or the intended encouragement of the believers in Ephesus, Christ's ascension into the lower parts of the earth. He doesn't leave behind doctrine when he addresses the mystery of Christ and the church as he addresses husbands and wives and how we are to live in mutual love with one another. He doesn't lay down doctrine when he addresses children. He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. This is Paul now expounding upon the foundation that he's laid in verses 1 through 3. Though there's only one imperative found in those first three chapters, and that is the to remember, we found with great encouragement, hopefully, during our time in the first three chapters, many opportunities for us to apply this truth that Paul was so, so much expressing. Such that we see, even within Paul's letter in chapter 3, that it overflows these, this truth of what God is doing in redeeming sinners and bringing Jews and Gentiles together. It overflows in orthopraxy as he prays and gives praise to the triune God. The doxological formulation in chapter 3, verses 21. And so when we approach this first word, under this first heading of orthopraxy, we see that this therefore that we have in chapter 4 has great intention. It has monumental implication. Because what happens with a therefore is that we see it distinguishes true orthodox Christianity from any perversion of it. Sometimes one, our people, and sometimes we fall directly into this trap ourselves or into this ditch. But some people accuse those of us in the Reformed tradition as being cold and orthodox. You only care about what you can know. You care nothing about love and, and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit. You, you only care about what you know. Well, this therefore stands in contradistinction to that. Because cold orthodoxy doesn't ask the question, therefore, it doesn't have the word, therefore. You, it's just, you just know. It's just, you ascend to this knowledge, this, this uh, compendium of doctrines, and, and, you, and that's it. There is no therefore. The other ditch that could be fallen into, that the therefore saves us from, is legalism or Phariseeism. The Phariseeism or legalism doesn't have a need for therefore. It doesn't have a need for a foundation upon which you are to live. It's just do. Live and do. Or do and live. The therefore in chapter 4, verse 1, 
saves us from cold orthodoxy and from legalism. Because biblical Christianity is fundamentally a therefore religion. If you look at the construction of your Bibles, even in the Old Testament, you see that it is all about therefore. The first five books of the Bible are known as the historical books. Moses' history of the Jewish people. The rest of the Old Testament largely is a therefore. Therefore, since God has created you in his own image. Therefore, since God has chosen you and set you apart and called you a nation when you weren't a nation, therefore, live unto him. Follow and obey him. Serve him. And because you can't do it to the standard on which God has called you to do it, therefore, believe that he will send one in your place to do so on your behalf. We see the same similar construction in our New Testament. We see in the, in the, in the four gospels, we see the historical account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Certainly there's more to it than that, but summarily it is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. As we've been reading through Acts, Acts is largely a therefore book. Therefore, since Christ has ascended on high and has been given authority in heaven and on earth, therefore, Christ finished the statement for us in Acts chapter 2, therefore go into all the nations. Go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Biblical Christianity is fundamentally a therefore religion. So it should come as no surprise to us that as individual Christians, we should fundamentally be therefore Christians. We should seek to wade into the deep waters of doctrine, the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son, the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son, the inseparable operations of the Trinity. We should know of some of these things. Certainly not all of us have been given and afforded the time according to God's providence to study and understand these things to the same level, but it should intrigue us to know more of our God and what He has done on our behalf. What we call in the Reformed tradition the law-gospel distinction is here for us. Because what we have in the Gospel plays out, therefore, in the law. Certainly, as we see the law as opposed to us, we see the law as one who reveals our sin. We see the law as the accuser, for if, as Paul says, I would not have known not to covet if the law said, do not covet. But as it relates to the gospel... The law sweetly complies. The moral law sweetly complies with the gospel because in the gospel we have something done for us, something true and factually done for us, and so then in the law we now have something to do. Not meritoriously, not to uh, complete what was incomplete in the gospel, 
but as a therefore. Paul, driving home this point from the first word in chapter 4, therefore, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Here Paul is living his therefore. Because Christ has taken hold of his life, because Christ had called him out of darkness into light, therefore, here I am. But Paul doesn't describe himself as a prisoner of the Lord in the sense that um, we, are, we are Christian prisoners. Right? He's, not a, he's, not a, uh, he's not a Christian, therefore a prisoner. But because he is a prisoner, he is therefore a prisoner of the Lord. For he saw himself not just as any prisoner. He was not a true criminal who violated the law of God and so was in need, in, in need at least externally, in need of the, the justice, the sword of justice given to the governmental authorities. He was, he'd never violated law, the law of God. He was not a political prisoner. He was not attempting to start a revolutionary movement to overthrow the Roman government. So he sits in prison waiting for the time that his followers would amass and so free him and then he would leave a, lead a political coup against the Roman Empire. Paul did not sit in his home prison as a political prisoner. Nor was he merely just a Roman prisoner. No, he wasn't just a prisoner of Caesar. He wasn't just merely a Roman prisoner. He was a prisoner of the Lord. Paul was expressing to the Ephesians his therefore, his providential, the providential happenings of the Lord upon his life that since these things are true and since we are now called out of darkness into light and so we will obey the Lord, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul was proclaiming to the Ephesians and to us at least three things here. One thing is that his imprisonment was provided for by the Lord. This genitive tone here of the Lord, the Lord's prisoner. It's, a, it's also translated in the Lord, but it carries the same semantic reality. That Paul saw himself as the Lord's prisoner. It was, it was on the Lord's behalf that he was a prisoner. So his, prison, his imprisonment was provided for by the Lord. This circumstance that had taken him away from his loved ones, and taken him away from his missionary journeys, and now is taking him all the way to Rome, though afforded um, some uh, common um, conveniences, he was not free to go. He was confined. But he saw this providence as being provided for by the Lord. For surely when Paul principally prayed for the Lord's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, he recognized the chief agent of his imprisonment being the Lord. Paul would have recognized that... He, or he's expressing here, implying here, that as a prisoner of the Lord, he's saying, as we pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That isn't so that we may walk among the lilies, and among the wildflowers, and smell the roses. 
though there will be times where the sun shines upon us, but Paul here, in the midst of, of what could be his last location, bows his head, or bows his knees before the Father. His imprisonment was provided for by the Lord. And so he, he is able, as he did in the previous chapter, to proclaim his imprisonment was for their sake and, for, and that it was provided much opportunity for the body of Christ to serve one another and his letter to be needed. If Paul was not in prison, he could just visit the Ephesians. He could come to them and, and, and preach to them this message. But here it's worked out for their glory and for our benefit. For he sends this letter to them. He sends this letter to them by hand, by hand of brothers in Christ who have ministered to him in prison and now have brought these letters to the churches. His imprisonment was provided for by the Lord. Second, that his imprisonment would not last longer than his master's desire. If, the Lord, if he's the Lord's prisoner, and the Lord is his master, then his imprisonment would not last longer than his master's desire. It would not last longer than needed to accomplish the master's divine decree. He could rest in the knowledge that though he's in prison, though he's chained and shackled to a Roman guard, though he cannot go in and out freely, he cannot see these beloved brothers in Ephesus who he labored with or labored for for years on end. But he could rest in the knowledge that this imprisonment would not last longer than his master's desire. As a prisoner of the Lord, he was only ultimately subject to the Lord for his imprisonment. Lastly, that his master is the as um, the master would provide the necessary daily bread for his endurance. As we pray the Lord's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we ask the Lord that he would give us our daily bread. Here Paul, as a prisoner of the Lord, would know that his master would provide the necessary daily bread for his endurance through this imprisonment such that he can call himself a prisoner of the Lord. As I said, this Roman imprisonment was one where it was more like what we know as house arrest. He'd be chained to a Roman guard by day and probably by two by night. So he, he bore these chains that he references in other places. He doesn't call them Roman chains. He usually calls them chains for a purpose. He saw them as symbolic, as a reality that these are chains of the Lord. And so if they are from the Lord, if they last as long as the Lord desires, then it will be the Lord who will provide the sustenance for him to endure through it. One commentator concluded, and he said, And I tell you that you will often find this life a prison house, where you must give up your own will 
deny yourselves, learn to endure hardness, and to bear the chain which suffering or neglect or ignorance put upon you. If you are indeed the prisoners of the Lord, the iron of your chain will make you brave to suffer and be strong. This weight of therefore, this weight of orthopraxy, comes with the knowledge that as God works providentially in our lives, we may be emboldened to call upon Him for help. That our chains would actually make us brave to suffer and be strong. So as he was demonstrating in his life, he urges the Ephesians to walk. He says, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. To walk. This ordinary mode of travel. Paul implores the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus he urges them and invokes not merely command, but earnest plea. He urges them to walk. This idea of walk or walking is a metaphor for the Christian life. He's not really asking them to go on a trip somewhere, right? He's not asking them that as you walk down the road, though there is implication of that, he doesn't make it exclusively just when you walk. It's a metaphor. We recognize that. We also recognize that other metaphors have been employed by Paul for the Christian life. He's described it as running a race, but he doesn't tell them here to run the race in a manner worthy. He describes it as a living sacrifice in Romans, but he doesn't say live as a sacrifice in a manner worthy. He's actually described it as work in Philippians. Work out your salvation. The Christian life is work. There's one thing that stands above them all in the metaphors that Paul employs, and that is walk. In Romans 6, 4, he says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Philippians 3.17, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not... Oh, that, it's in Philippians 3.17 also. Not those words, but... Walk. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. For this reason, also, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Here in Ephesians, though, there seems to be an explosion or an exposition of this idea. In Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Here in 4.1, and again in 5.2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. In 5.8, and you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In 5.15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. What is, what is the thing with walking in the Christian life? I think Paul brings up walking because everybody did it. Back then, that was the mode of travel. Chariots were for royalty. Chariots were for armies. Maybe carts. But walking was the common mode of travel. It was the ordinary way people got around. It was life for them. To walk was life. It was ordinary life. And the metaphor holds because, for the most part, everybody can do it. Certainly there are those that are disabled from doing it, but moving and traveling is usually pretty common to everybody. The other way I think the metaphor holds is that a lot of ground can be covered by walking. If you sprint, you could be easily tired. I know for us, our first three hours of driving, the devil's dead. He shows up those first three hours. We've got 20 hours to go. Those first three hours, we're about, we turn around three times. But walking, you can travel and cover a lot of ground. And it's ordinary. I think Paul is expressing to them that that what he is about to say, what he is about to implore them, this idea of walking in a manner worthy of the calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another and love, is to be expressed in ordinary life. This is an encouragement for ordinary life. Oftentimes in, in the Christian world or in the evangelical world, whichever world that sums up for you, Usually the imperatives come in extraordinary imperatives. When Paul here is intending to encourage them in the ordinary life. Michael Horton, in thinking upon this idea of ordinary, has said, Ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, and make a difference. 
We need to be radical disciples, taking our faith to a whole new level. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. Or it's TikTok these days. I, I'm sure I just dated myself by saying Facebook. For the Christian life, it can be contrasted by two ideas that, it, that have influenced my life. One early on and the other later on in life. This idea of ordinary. It's the difference between camp high and catechism. As I grew up in the church, I'm thankful to my parents who did as best as the Lord led them. So as I grew up in the church attending junior high, high school Christian camp, there, it was a common term. And if you've ever been to camp, you know the term camp high. You were waiting. You would order your life prior to camp, knowing that you were going there to have this experiential, existential experience with God and have a camp high so that when what you did before, maybe maybe you got away with a couple things before because you knew you were going to make it right with God at, at camp. And you had this camp high. It wasn't ordinary. It was extraordinary. You were in this week-long focus of teaching, and they've come to understand a lot of manipulating, but still there was this concentration of, of people in your age group, and there was Bible studies, and there was readings, and there was chapels, and there was the height of the camp. It was, I think, Thursday night, and we would have only Friday after, and then we'd go home on Saturday, so they needed one day to... I don't know complete the process, but Thursday was the pinnacle of the week. They had an altar call. This extraordinary event where people would either come forward or sit there with heads bowed, raise your hand. Man, it was extraordinary. And I don't discount that that worked positively in the life of many of a true believer at these camps. I don't discount that there have been many people that the Lord has used these means to call him to himself. This is not to negate any of that, but this is to contrast this idea of camp high and then what I've come to appreciate more in the life with my children is catechism. Oh, catechism is difficult. It's very ordinary. Sometimes they don't use ordinary words, but for the most part, it's daily. For the most part, it's this ordinary and regular teaching that we go over with my, our children, the truths of the faith. So they may have a foundation upon which when the Lord enlivens their heart, they may now believe upon a foundation. And maybe by some transference they may see that the Christian life is for ordinary life. Horton concludes, he says, ordinary does not mean mediocre. Athletes, architects, humanitarians, and artists can vouch for the importance of everyday faithfulness to mundane tasks that lead to excellence. But even if we are not headliners in our various callings, it is enough to know that we are called there by God to maintain a faithful presence in this world. We look up in faith toward God and outward and out toward our neighbors in love and good works. You don't have to transform the world to be faithful, to be a faithful mom or dad or sibling or church member or neighbor. 
Though you understand that as the gospel goes out through these ordinary lives, that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the salvation of the lost that will ultimately bring about the full renewal of all creation to a, an earthly and heavenly crescendo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's not ordinary. But our Christian life often is. We are called here. We are implored by the apostles to walk in a manner worthy. There's obligation here. This idea of calling we we see early on. What, what is he talking about calling? Other older translations say vocation, but it has been uh, modernly translated as calling to carry on this idea. He says, I pray that the eyes in Ephesians 1.18 of your heart may be enlightened so that you know what is the hope of His calling. We see it again in verse for, as, as I read at the, at the beginning, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. He references it in 1 Corinthians 1.26 and 2 Timothy 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. This calling, worthy of the calling. It is the calling of God's salvific worth work, both in justification and sanctification. It is both status and station, both position and progress. For we have been called out of darkness and into light. Worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This idea that you have been called and there is a calling. You have been deemed right with God. You have been justified by faith alone. And now you are to live by faith alone and be sanctified. This idea of worthy. Worthy is not, is not earning. It's not worth. Like your assets added together is, is your full net worth. It's not self-worth. It's not how you value yourself. It's not value. It's, it's suitableness. It's in like manner. In step with. Walk in a manner suitable to the calling with which you have been called. Why? Because the gospel... The law sweetly complies with the gospel, as it says in our confession. This moral law sweetly complies with the gospel. Paul is going to give expression to the moral law in, verses, in chapters 4 through 6. We're going to take pains to see that Paul is not in verses 4 through 6 saying, Now that you know the gospel and the doctrine, here is new law. Maybe bringing application new application or, or uh, contextual relevant application but it is the law of God it is the moral law that which is imprinted on the hearts of all who have been created in the image of a moral God 
that we may apply this in two ways. When it comes to this obligation to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, we can come to this in two ways. First, backwards and forwards. This exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called looks backward and forward. The backward glance provides structure. There is the calling to which you have been called. God has already summoned. The gospel has already beckoned. New life has already been born within you. In a world where purpose can be fleeting, these Christians have now always already been identified as those who have been called. What does he say in chapter 1? To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. They are saints already, for they have been called. Can you sitting here think of that in your own life? Have you been called by God? Have you been born again to new life? Have you left darkness and entered light? There's much to go into that question. But if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. I, I'm not trying to dumb it down. I'm not trying to, uh, to enter and wade into the, what has been known in the past in some other traditions as easy believism. But if you understand who Jesus is, and you understand who you are, and you understand what Jesus has done, and you believe that he has done it on your behalf, then you can say that you have been called. You can count yourself as the called. But we know, for, uh, for those of us that have been called, just as Paul knows, just as the Spirit who's superintending the writing of Paul knows, there's three chapters that talk about this calling. This idea that we have not been translated in consummated steps or in a, in a, in a full reality from sinful humanity to sinless existence. We know this. We know it with every interaction we have with another human being. We know it with every thought we have in our own hearts and minds. So that's why Paul first addresses these Gentiles with the idea of humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love. Because he knows that even if they believe chapters 1 through 3, and they dig deep into it to understand what is being expressed here, he knows. It doesn't magically translate them to some sinless reality where everybody's holding hands and nobody has any problem with each other and nobody has any baggage. And so he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. There is a calling, there is a walking there's a forward prospect here. The forward look prompts hope in the face of moral and personal despair. You have the calling which you have been called. Whatever settled character marks their identity as those who have been called, it is as those who have a calling. Christian assurance, then, is not complacency, and surely not satisfaction with the status quo. 
The calling given to these women and men can be depicted as nothing less than apocalyptic and transfigurative. They are meant for, nay, they are destined for glory and nothing less. Worthy of the calling, there is a, an end reality to it. The new humanity that is begun with the resurrection of Christ, here expressed now in the gathering of the body of Christ, will have a consummated day of glory. Look to that day often. Think of who will, who will get you to that day. For you will often turn to that person in need to carry you on to the next one. Many ordinary events will take place in your life between now and the next time I bring it up. Each one endowed by the Lord, provided for by the Lord. Each one given to you. And also, each one will be provided the sustenance to the Lord to continue on so that we may rightfully in our hearts give glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks that